Amen. Take your Bible, if you would, this morning and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter number one. We'll actually be in the latter portion of Ecclesiastes one, the first part of Ecclesiastes chapter number two. And as you're finding that, if you need a pew Bible, by the way, there's one in front of you. And we're on page 518. That makes it easy to find. If you need a little help today, grab one of those pew Bibles, page 518. And let me say good morning as well to those of you that are with us online. We're so grateful for you and pray God's continuing blessing uh, on your life. Thanks for joining us via this broadcast today. We are in a series of messages from what I consider to be one of the great books of the Bible, one that has ministered to my soul particularly in recent years, as much as any other part of Scripture. I think Ecclesiastes makes uh, a little bit more sense to more people, and I think it's more meaningful to us as we get a little bit older. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, we tend to look at life differently the older that we get. We tend to process some things about life. You know, when you're 15, 18, 20, 25 years old, you think you're immortal. You think you're going to live forever. You don't consider uh, long-term questions or things of that nature, but things, you know, get different the older that you get, and that's been certainly true for me, and Ecclesiastes has been an encouraging blessing, even though there are parts of the book that are rather challenging to process, but that's why you have a preacher, and that's why we come together with an open Bible to work our way through those challenges, to see what God would have to say for us and to us in these important days in which we live as we together as the church wait on Christ to come again. And by the way, let me just say it again, I believe Jesus is coming again. How about you? And uh, even so, Lord, quickly come. When I was a teenager, one of the games that uh, I really enjoyed playing, because I'm mostly nerdy at heart, was a game called Trivial Pursuits. Y'all remember Trivial Pursuits? Do people still play Trivial Pursuit? I had friends that would just take the cards and try to memorize the cards in order to win the game. I didn't like them very much when they did that, but I did enjoy playing the game. <clears throat> the object of the game, of course, was to give correct answers to questions about random things that were totally disconnected from one another. Questions like, uh, what was the name of the actor that played the skipper on Gilligan's Island? Alan Hale Jr., that's right, absolutely. Well, you didn't say junior, so technically, since his father, Alan Hale, was an actor, we would have disqualified you for that question, but anyway. <laughs> I read the card, all right? Or what state has produced the most United States presidents? Virginia. No, I think it's Ohio, actually, the great state of Ohio. Uh, what country was formerly known as Siam? Thailand, that's right. Man alive, we got some winners in the house this morning. <laughs> Card readers, they obviously were. I like Trivial Pursuits, fun game. Uh, but basically, the information that's passed along has no usefulness whatsoever. In fact, the subtitle of the game, and I still have it somewhere in my house, the subtitle of the game, Trivial Pursuits, a compendium of useless information. <laughs> well, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes here at Hillcrest, a bone honest book in which a man who simply identifies himself as the Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the seeking preacher teacher, the one on the quest 
for knowledge, lays his heart on the table, and he tells us what he really thinks about life and the here and now, life in this world, or to use his vernacular, life under the sun that Pastor Dustin unpacked for us a little bit last Sunday. We have identified this preaching, teaching seeker as Solomon, king of Israel, son of David. And one of the things that's obvious early on in this book is that Solomon, this aging king who's ruled Israel for nearly 40 years, has come to believe that life is nothing more than a series of trivial pursuits that have no rhyme or reason, no real purpose. You remember how he begins the book? Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All things are full of weariness. There is nothing new under the sun. There is no remembrance of the former things. Solomon says that life is vanity, a word that basically means a mist or a vapor or smoke. There's no real substance. Life has no lasting value. It's all meaningless smoke, smoke, smoke. It's nothing but smoke. You remember the old song, don't you, right? Hanging around, nothing to do but frown. Rainy days and Mondays always get me down. I think the carpenters, when they wrote that, were reading the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, maybe. But the good thing is that Solomon doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on his quest for meaning and his quest for purpose, his quest for life and a proper understanding of life. And in the meantime, as he asks these questions and attempts to answer many of them throughout the 12 chapters of this book, Solomon, in these verses that we're going to isolate this morning, considers four areas that he himself had personally invested a lot of time and a lot of effort. These are areas where the conventional wisdom says meaning and purpose can be found. This is where they, the world says you need to look in order to know purpose and, and meaning. Solomon did that. But alas, when all was said and done, you know what Solomon found these things to be? Trivial pursuits, nothing but smoke. We're going to talk about two of these things today, and then we're going to come back and kind of finish this message next week by looking at the final two of these trivial pursuits that Solomon mentions, things that will let you down if you make it the end all of your life's journey. The first he isolates is the pursuit of wisdom. We might you know, instead of wisdom, we might say educative wisdom or educative knowledge. I think that when Solomon talks about the pursuit of wisdom here, he's talking not so much about the kind of wisdom that's godly wisdom, but he's talking about worldly wisdom more than anything else. Things that you can acquire in terms of a compendium of knowledge from the academy or from self-study or from a life of reading. Look beginning in verse number 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. 
surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, let's just stop there for a couple of minutes, because if there's one thing that, you know, biblically anyway, that most of us associate with Solomon more than anything else, it's what? Wisdom, that's right. And, and, and Solomon wanted that. In fact, he exercises a bit of maturity early in his reign, some 40 years previously, the time of his writing this book. And he asks God, rather than asking God for money, and rather than asking God for fame, or for position, or status, or power, or riches, Solomon asked God for wisdom. And here's how God answered him in 1 Kings chapter 3. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. And then it goes on later in 1 Kings chapter 10 to say, thus, because he asked and because God answered, Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and what? And, and wisdom. And so here's the thing about Solomon. He was at the time a modern day, what we would call a, a renaissance man, a man of the world. He had an inquiring mind. He, he'd spent his whole life seeking out knowledge and seeking out wisdom. In fact, I think that probably in his day and time, Solomon would have been at least one of the best educated men in the world. Certainly, he was the best educated man in all of the kingdom of Israel. And yet, the more Solomon learned, it's interesting. Did you notice it here? The more Solomon learned, the more wisdom and the more knowledge that Solomon acquired, the more empty Solomon felt. It didn't satisfy the deepest longing of his life, the deepest, deepest need of his life. In fact, he calls this, this vigorous pursuit of wisdom that so many of us are driven after. Solomon calls it an unhappy business. Let me just say that the Hebrew word that's translated there, unhappy, is a whole lot stronger in the original than the word unhappy. It's not just an unhappy emotion, though it can carry that. The idea is used most of the time, that word when it's used in the Hebrew Old Testament is used to describe something malicious or bad or even evil. And that's Solomon's heart. The more Solomon learned, the more confused he became, and the more uh, confused he became, the more burdened he became about life. That's verse 18 of our text. For in much wisdom is much what? vexation, confusion. You remember the passage when the apostle Paul, late in the book of Acts, is standing before the Roman governor. The governor looked at him and said, Paul, I believe that your great learning has driven you what? Mad. It's driven you into insanity. And that's what Solomon is saying. There's much vexation in much wisdom. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In fact, it was a bad business that Solomon calls a striving after the wind. That's an important phrase. 
in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right up there in terms of the number of times that uh, Solomon uses it. It's right up there with the word vanity, which is used over 30 times throughout Ecclesiastes. It's right up there with the phrase, uh, under the sun, which is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. This phrase, a striving after the wind, crops up repeatedly all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, one of Solomon's favorite phrases. The NIV uses the phrase, a chasing after the wind. I want you to just kind of image that in your mind. Somebody out in a field, literally chasing after wind in order to try to corral it, in order to try to grasp the blowing wind. And boy, did we ever have some wind yesterday blowing in from the southwest. Imagine somebody out in the field trying to capture that in their hands. You'd, you'd point at that person and say, that person's lost his mind. That person's out of his, out of his mind. He's, he's lost it. What he's trying to do is not doable. You've often heard the phrase in leadership, trying to lead these peoples like trying to herd cats. Y'all ever heard that before? It's almost impossible to herd cats. Every pastor in the world has said that at one time or another. It's like trying to herd a bunch of cats. Here's the thing. As difficult as it is to try to herd cats, it's even more difficult to try to rein in the wind and to try to capture the wind. When it comes to finding purpose and meaning in life, you try to do that through the acquisition of knowledge or worldly wisdom. Try to understand knowledge from a strictly intellectual standpoint through intellectual pursuits. And Solomon would testify to you and to me today something that's just as true now as it was then. Trying to find meaning through intellectual pursuits is, in fact, a trivial pursuit. It's a chasing after the wind. Now, let me just say this morning, having said all of that, I think you ought to try to acquire as much knowledge as you can in this life. I think you ought to get as much education as you possibly can in this life. I am pro-education. I've got a lot of it. I don't know how much it's done for me, but I have been to school a lot in my life, a good percentage of my life. Education is a worthy pursuit. But Solomon says that if the wisdom and the knowledge of this world, if that's all you got, you are not going to get very far, particularly in understanding the reality of who you are and who God is and why you're here and what you're supposed to be doing while you're here and what's going to happen when this life, which is like a speck of sand in the specter of eternity, is completely over, you're not going to get very far if that's all you've got. The old preacher from North Carolina, Vance Havner, used to say that the janitor in the university usually had more wisdom than the scholared professor in the corner office of the university. And that's right much of the time. Today, on your personal computer, on the hard drive of your personal computer, there's more knowledge just on your personal computer than was once contained in all the libraries of all the nations put together. That's just incredible when you think about it. And yet, how much good is it really done? Are people still illiterate throughout the world? By the millions. Are people still starving in the world? By the millions. People are still hungry. They're still illiterate. They're still diseased. People are still dispossessed. There are still tyrants in the world. 
people totally unhappy with life, even though they've acquired much in life. The Bible says it in verse 18, and much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Here's the point. Apart from the knowledge of God, the only thing an educated man or woman can do is die an educated failure. That's Solomon's point. If you acquire all the knowledge in the world, all the skill sets of the world, if you're trained in the greatest academies, schooled by the greatest teachers, to die without the knowledge of God, which is the critical insight that every person has to have in order to unlock the door of purpose and meaning and vitality and genuine life, abundant and eternal, you will die an educated failure. And that's because all the learning in the world cannot change the human heart. Amen. Only truth with a capital T can transform the human heart. Truth and the knowledge of Christ, who is himself the truth, the one who said, I myself and I alone am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to connect to the Father eternally and everlastingly and abundantly except through me. And that's why in the grand scheme of things, the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of knowledge is a trivial pursuit. And it's why our Lord said in Jeremiah chapter 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. And let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. In fact, put that back on the screen, guys. We're going to say this scripture out loud together because it's one of the great statements in the Bible. Verse 24, together. Verse 23, rather, together. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Can you say amen this morning? So you got it so far? Trivial pursuits that will not help you find ultimate meaning, purpose, and contentment in life. And the first one that Solomon mentions is rather surprising because at the beginning of his life, that's what he asked for from God is most important. And at the end of his life, now he finds that that by itself is not enough to bring what you want more than anything else in life, wisdom. The second trivial pursuit that he mentions here in this passage is the pursuit of pleasure, which is something that in the Western world anyway is pretty endemic. Everybody wants to have a pleasure-filled life. We don't want to work so hard. We want the work week to be consolidated. And we want to be able to have enough money to engage in experiences in life. I remember the Mountain Dew commercial from several years ago, Do the Dew. And, you know, the whole thing was this guy, this radical-looking guy, who just looked like he was having a ball with life, doing all of these crazy things. I see a lot of this on Instagram today, those of you that do Instagram, a lot of the moving pictures Uh, from what's called earth picks, where these people are just doing crazy things, jumping from these mammoth heights with nothing on but a tiny parachute in the shape of a Batman, you know, design. 
or this young girl who looks like a model climbing to the top of this massive tower to stand on it and hang from it with no safety devices whatsoever. I mean, I see these things, and it gives me the heebie-jeebies just looking at it, much less to even consider doing it. And yet, that's what people are engaging in today. The greatest experience uh, to engage in something that creates a thrill that they've never done before. Solomon probably did a little bit of that because he could afford to do it in life. And he wants us to know that you could have every experience in life, every thrill, every wild ride imaginable, but it's not going to answer the deepest questions of your life. And when you come to the end of it all, you may be a person who's had a number of experiences that have caused goosebumps, but you'll end your life empty because you will have missed the whole point. This is what Solomon has to say as we journey into chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was what? Say it out loud. Vanity, empty, smoke. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I mean, that could have been written by somebody this morning in the United States of America because this is what a lot of people exist for. And Solomon admitted that at one time in his life, in his younger life, that's what he existed for. Now he was an older guy, couldn't do a lot of that stuff. And now as he looked forward at a dwindling future in terms of the amount of time that he had left to live, he was looking back saying, well, what was that? Have you ever done that? Had a good time only to experience it and it's all over again? Many of you will feel this way after the next vacation that you take. I call it the post-traumatic vacation blues. I mean, the greatest time of vacation are the two or three days leading up to it when you've got all this anticipation of what's going to happen. I'm going to be free, and I'm going to go hiking, and I'm going to see these historical sites, or I'm going to lay by the beach and read good books or whatever the case might be, and you look forward to it. And then the drive or the flight, wherever you're going, gives you a rush and you're excited and then you get there and you just go, 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 go and you collapse in the bed at night and it's over so fast it really is nothing but a puff of smoke. And then Monday comes around and you're singing the carpenter's song. <laughs> Rainy days and Mondays always get me down and you live in the blues for the next little bit. And what's happening in your mind? What was that? It went by so fast. That's why you can't make pleasure an end all in life. But many people do. We call it hedonism. Hedonism. The first thing that Solomon mentioned as a trivial pursuit was intellectualism. Now he turns his attention to hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, and the pursuit of personal experiences. It's what many in the privileged West still do. They think happiness and Fulfillment can be found by the things that we can touch and the things that we can taste and 
the things that we can hear or sense or feel. So we go, 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 try to get all the, what was the old commercial? Try to get all the gusto that you can out of life. And here's the thing, I'm not totally against that. Neither should you be. You should take vacations and you should look forward to time away and you should do exciting things. I'm all about it. Just don't think that's a solution for knowing the meaning of life or that doing those things alone are going to make you happy because they're going to come to an end and then it's back to the real world again. When I was a kid, the go-to place to shop because I always went there with my mother and my grandmother. I still remember those days was Woolworth. How many of you remember the Woolworth store? Did y'all have a Woolworth in Pensacola back in the day? Said, yeah, you did. So we're in Nashville, my son and I, staying at a hotel on 6th Avenue. We walked over to a restaurant on 5th Avenue, walked right by the old Woolworth store. Still as it was in the 1960s when I was a boy. Very historic place. Because there were many of the set-ins of the 1960s, 1960 to be precise, that caused many of the race riots in Nashville, Tennessee. Martin Luther King was there. All of the great civil rights leaders were there at that very Woolworth store. The original sign still on the building. They're supposed to be turning it into a restaurant. You could look through the glass and still see the lunch counter right there, untouched for the most part, is it? had been since 1960. In fact, we may have a picture of that. Did we, did we have a picture of that? They may have a picture of that. They throw it up there. You'll see a picture of that from last week where my boy was standing right in front of the Woolworth store. Wool, F.W. Woolworth founded that store. Yeah, there's Seth right there. Isn't he a handsome chap? Amen. <laughs> standing right in, one, in front of Woolworth on 5th. Very historic. And you see the black and white photographs, which were from the 1960s of those incredible set-ins that took place there. F.W. Woolworth was the richest man around in his prime. When he died, he left a $50 million fortune to his granddaughter, Barbara Hutton. That was a, about a third of his estate. $50 billion way back in the early part of the 20th century was a ton of money. And Barbara Hutton, Woolworth's granddaughter, inherited that when she turned 21 years old. And she started spending. You, can't, you couldn't spend that much money. She didn't know how to spend it because it made money faster than she could spend it. And so she bought yachts and she bought uh, priceless works of art. She bought her own private rail car and had it outfitted by the designers of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. But the thing about Barbara Hutton, she had all this money and all the things that money could buy, but it never brought her a moment's happiness. She's one of the most unhappy women that ever lived. She got married seven times, brothers and sisters. She married a Vietnamese prince. She married a German count. She married Cary Grant, for crying out loud. And then four others after that. She battled alcoholism most of her life. Later in life, she became a victim of anorexia basically becoming nothing but walking skeleton, skin, and bones. She weighed something like 80 pounds when she died at the age of 66 years old. And when she died, she had about $3,500 in the bank. None of that stuff made a lasting difference in that woman's life. And that's what Solomon's trying to communicate because he was in the same boat. He was born a prince 
into a household of privilege. He'd studied under great tutors of his day. He'd been afforded opportunities and experiences that the great majority of people, virtually all of them, could only dream about. He dabbled in all kinds of personal experiences, had a boatload of fun with his life, but most of that was just to mask his confusion. He, he lists several areas to be specific, one of which was sensuality. Oh, listen, aside from Solomon's acquisition of wisdom, what's best known about Solomon? Not only the wisdom, but the what? The women. 700 wives. Anybody that would want to be married to two wives, I'm not even going to go there this morning. <laughs> Plural marriage is a bad idea. God is not for it. He's never been for it. He says in verse 10, what, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And that surely included his desire for women. With all that wisdom, the Bible says King Solomon loved many foreign women many of whom, by the way, he married as a result of political pacts with surrounding nations as a means of alliance. He loved many foreign women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What is wise about that? There's no wisdom in that. And he often, the thing about that is, if you read the book of Proverbs, he's literally shouting at his sons, don't do what I did. Proverbs 6, for example, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. He who commits adultery lacks sense, and he who does it destroys himself. Solomon tried sensuality, it didn't work. Then he tried amusement. Amusement, only to find that comedy and laughter, having a good time with life, that's only a temporary break from the tears that reflected the pain of his life. He says in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is what? Mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Have you ever noticed how insecure people tend to mask their insecurities by making jokes or trying to get a laugh? I never cease to be amazed at how many professional comedians are personally unhappy and oftentimes depressed. The greatest example, that's Robin Williams. Arguably the funniest man, maybe who's ever dotted the entertainment landscape of the world. I mean, he was just a comic genius. Everybody has said that about him. And yet, here's a guy, he made it on the stage, he made it on late night television, he made it in the movies. I mean, he had everything that money could buy. And yet, even though he had arrived professionally, he arrived financially, he failed to see any value in it. In fact, he got to the point at the age of 63, I'm not 63, but I can see it. I can see it in the distance. And at 63, he came to the conclusion, the funniest man alive, that life wasn't worth living. And he ended it all by taking his own life. I'm just saying, if you, if you make the pursuit of pleasure the focus of your life, you'll end up frustrated. 
because that's a trivial pursuit. That kind of pursuit doesn't have any room for pain. It doesn't have any room for failure. That kind of life has no room for the loss of a job. It has no room for cancer. It has no room for a tragic accident. It has no room for financial loss. And that's why Solomon said of laughter, it's mad. It's madness. In other words, the pursuit of pleasure when he was younger ended up driving him crazy because it didn't matter how much fun he had. He still had to wake up the next day. He had to wake up to life in the real world. All that was was a mask. Now, just as I said earlier, I'm all about laughter. I think there's some people in the house this morning, people, some watch, people that are watching, we need to learn how to laugh more than we're laughing now. I think you ought to have a good time. I think life should be viewed positively and optimistically and hopefully with a smile on your face and a skip in your step. And if anybody ought to be able to do that, it should be the people of God. We've got more reason to laugh, more reason to be happy, more reason to be optimistic and hopeful and upbeat. And for the life of me, I know more Christians as not that are just mad as they can be at the world. Mad at God, mad at the preacher, mad at other people. And you want to lift your hands up and say, why? Are you not a believer? Are you not somebody whose life has been transformed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ who's moved into your life to give you a purpose and a hope? No, we ought to be joyful because we have a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. We ought to be hopeful, we ought to be optimistic, and we ought to laugh a lot. But that has to be tempered by the reality that, particularly for lost folk, that not all of life's a laughing matter. I mean, there's nothing more serious than how you spend your life and how you choose your pursuits. And most importantly, where you're going to spend eternity. And that's why one of the greatest tragedies in all of life is a good-natured, good-humored man or woman who dies apart from a knowledge of Christ. That may be the greatest tragedy of all. And all of us know people. They're great people. They laugh a lot and they have a good time and they've got all kinds of toys. But they don't know Jesus. And they're laughing themselves all the way to hell. And that ought to break our hearts. And it's why we do things like who's your one and creating a culture of disciples who make disciples. Because the last thing we want to be is a people who don't notice the plight of the spiritually lost. Because the spiritually lost people that we know seem to be having such a good time with life. No, have a good time. Laugh a lot. But don't forget to approach life soberly, as the Bible says. Because truthfully, eternity's on the line. Solomon looked for contentment in sensuality, in amusement. And then Solomon tried alcohol. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. 
my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Now, this is odd, particularly given that Solomon himself had cautioned against the abuse of alcohol in Proverbs 20 and verse 1. You remember this verse, don't you? Wine is a what? A mocker. Strong drink is a a brawler, and whoever is led astray is not what? Wise. But then he comes clean, just as he did with the issue concerning women, and said, I didn't always practice what I preached. And it ended up being perhaps the most trivial pursuit of all because it's a road that leads to nowhere. All in the world alcohol do is mask the pain. It's not going to make it go away completely. People search for meaning through pleasure. And they do it, I think, because life is so short. And again, it takes on a whole new meaning for so many people the older that you get in life. I don't know what happens to men. Men lose their mind when they turn 40 and 50. At least many of them do. Y'all ever known a guy had a critical birthday and lost his mind? Started doing crazy things, weird and unexplainable things. Like, you know, just starting buying all these expensive things. Or going to all these expensive places. Or connecting with younger women. And you know why they do that? I, I, don't, I don't excuse a lot of that stuff. But I think I understand it. The reason that they do it is because they get to a point in life... And they realize, looking back in the rearview mirror, I'm never going to be president of the United States. I'm never going to Congress. I'm never going to be a United States senator. I'm never going to be the chairman of the board of a Fortune 500 company. And I've got 15, maybe 20, maybe 25 years left of my life. And I'm burning daylight. So I'm going to buy a toupee. I'm going to put a rug on, man. I guess they don't do that anymore. You just get the hair inserted right into the scalp. As if that's going to make a difference. But it helps explain sometimes why people do what they do. They try to grab like that guy doing the do. You grab life by the horns and you ride it for all it's worth. Do as much as you can, as quick as you can. But Solomon says, you know what? It's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. Now, we got to quit this morning, but let me, let me do that just by reminding everybody, first of all, that God is not a spoiled sport. God's not a prude. The Bible says God has created all things for our enjoyment. Amen. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to live life to the fullest. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more what? Abundantly. The point that Solomon's trying to make here is that you can only really enjoy life when you understand who you are, who God is, where you came from, why you're here, and where you're going when you die. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we have Ecclesiastes in the Bible. It's not there to discourage us. It's not there to depress us. It's not there to make us set home and think ponderous thoughts all day long and never engage life. No. But what it does remind us is that real satisfaction can only be found in a knowledge of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ and living your life to please an audience of one, namely your heavenly Father, God. That's what it means to view and live life not under the sun, but to learn to view and live life above the sun. Because that eternal perspective is where the knowledge of purpose always comes from. Augustine said it well, the early church father of the 4th and 5th century, he said it as well as anybody, no words have ever been spoken outside the Bible that are more true than these. He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has what? Nothing at all. That's the point this morning as you engage in worthwhile and not trivial pursuits in your quest for meaning and purpose in life. Let's commit together. We're going to do it God's way and live in a spirit of joy for the glory of God. This is his word and all God's people said, amen.